We're in the series, the first letter to Timothy. This is part eight in the series, God's love for the church. I'll be reading from 1 Timothy 3. If you have a Bible, if not, uh, you can find one in front of you in the pew rack and turn to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. My sources include John Calvin's commentary on 1 Timothy, William Hendrickson's New Testament commentary on Timothy, uh, John R.W. Stott, The Message of 1 Timothy from the Bible Speaks Today series, Michael Bentley's Passing on the Truth, uh, from First Timothy, and then Philip Graham Rikens' Reformed Expository Commentary on First Timothy. First Timothy 3, starting at verse 14, please stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word. It's not a long passage, but a powerful passage. This is the Word of God. Although I hope to come to you soon... I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this, your word. I pray that you will speak, Lord, through this word and that you will give us understanding and application in our own lives. And Thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Derek Lamb, and I'm not talking about the fashion designer. Derek Lamb is a courageous young Christian leader who lives in Hong Kong. Recently, about a year and a half ago, he wrote for the New York Times about the suppression of human rights for Christians in China. He writes, since I was 16 years old, I have wanted to be a pastor. I was raised in a Christian family in Hong Kong that urged me to live by biblical principles. Those biblical principles have also informed my democratic activism for the past six years. And it is for that reason that I am likely to be jailed next month and that I will be barred from ever becoming a pastor. Lamb provides examples of what he calls, quote-unquote, an unprecedented, unprecedented erosion of religious freedom in Hong Kong, especially for Christians. Believers forced to worship in underground churches, the government tearing down church buildings. The only way to avoid trouble, according to this young man, is for churches to stay quiet and small or to bow down to the current leader of China, Xi Jinping. But Lamb boldly declares, I won't make Jesus bow down to Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is the general secretary of the Communist Party. He is the president of the People's Republic of China. And Lamb continues this way, he concludes and says, Although there is nothing I would love more than to become a pastor and preach the gospel in Hong Kong, I will never do so if it means making Jesus subservient to Xi Jinping. Instead, I will continue to fight for religious freedom in Hong Kong, 
even if I have to do it from behind bars. What I ask of you is to keep Hong Kong in your prayers as we seek to find light amid the sea of darkness descending upon us. Sixteen years old. Pretty powerful, huh? As recent as just this last September, a group of Chinese pastors, including Derek Lamb, have signed a statement denouncing the government's efforts to restrict Christianity and vowing to, quote-unquote, bear all losses for the sake of the gospel as persecution escalates in the officially atheist country. The St. Charles Institute reports that this month, a group of 344 pastors, with the the list is growing every day, have signed a public joint statement which they titled, A Declaration of the Christian Faith. And here's what it says. We are a group of Chinese Christians chosen by the Most High God to be His humble servants. We believe and are obligated to teach the world that the one true and living triune God is the creator of the universe, of the world, and of all people. All men should worship God and not any man or thing. And in the statement, the pastors state that they are, quote, prepared to bear all losses, even the loss of our freedom and our lives for the sake of the gospel. Why would they do that? Because they've embraced the truth that Paul writes about. An interested bystander by the name of Pontius Pilate once asked Jesus a very important question. You might remember this question. What is truth? What is truth? Why did he ask Jesus this question? Because Jesus said something to him that he could not understand. It reminds me a lot of people in the culture in which we live. At any rate, Pilate had said to Jesus, you are a king then. And Jesus answered him in John chapter 18, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And that's why Pilate said, with sarcasm dripping, What is truth? The truth isn't what it used to be. During one White House scandal, a prominent lawyer was asked if his client was telling the truth. And so the reporter demanded, tell us what the truth is. And the lawyer answered the reporter, the truth is, in, is what is in that deposition unless the prosecutor makes us a deal and then we'll make up something else. In other words, the truth is something that may or may not actually be true. In his book, No Place for Truth, David Wells argues that the church is weak because it has, quote, exchanged the sensibilities of modern culture for the truth of Christ. And if Wells is correct, then the church is no longer the church because Paul defines the church by its relationship to the truth. 1 Timothy 3.14, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing to you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And so this morning, let's look at three lessons from this text. The first being, 
Order in God's house. Order in God's house. Paul was planning on visiting Ephesus, a church he helped to found. He had sent Timothy there to be their pastor. And that's why this letter was written to instruct Timothy as a young pastor in the ways of leading a church. Ephesus was an ancient Greek city along the coast, near the coast. And it's in present day um, near Izmir, the province of Izmir, uh, in Turkey. But he wanted to come there before too long, but in case he was detained by an arrest or, or some other event. In the meantime, he wanted Timothy to carry out his pastoral duties without any, without any question as to how he should do so. He wanted Timothy to know where to stand on issues. And he said he wanted him to stand on the truth. And since letters like this were actually read publicly... Did you know that? They they read these letters to the whole church. He wanted to remind all of the Ephesians to support their their pastor by behaving themselves in the household of God. Actually, what Paul wanted Timothy to know is he had been entrusted not with a business, but with God's house. Is this God's house that we're in now? Is it? Is it? House is actually the correct word in verse 15, where actually it says God's household, but it's actually in that verse, it should be house. In verses 4 and 5 and 12, it should be household. But in verse 15, it really should be house. So basically it should read, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's house. In Jesus Christ, we are God's house. We are God's sanctuary that we sing about. Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. The Spirit of God lives in those of us who believe. So turn back from Timothy, back the other way, to Corinthians. Let's look at a few passages in First and Second Corinthians. First Corinthians... Chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says in verse 16 of chapter 3, Don't you know? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? So this is plural. You, all of us, you, Collectively, you are the temple of God. All right, now turn to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Verse 19. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that you, your bodies... That's singular here. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So why are we to honor God with our bodies? Because the Spirit of God lives in those of us who believe. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord, 
The Spirit of God lives in you. And so your body is a temple. Now turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Again, verse 16. 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. So the church is God's residence. The church, as we learn as a child, is people. It's really not about the building. It's about the people. The church of the living God is who we are. John Calvin writes this. He says, There are good reasons why God would call the church His house. For not only has He received us as His sons by the grace of adoption, but He Himself dwells in the midst of us. And so now I'm going to read from Ephesians. So if you can turn over to Ephesians, a little bit after Corinthians, before you get to Timothy. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. The last verse of the chapter. Ephesians 2, 22. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I I think we need a visual of that. I think we need an image of that in our minds to, to recognize that when we walk about our life each day, The Spirit of God lives in us, and when we gather as the people of God, His Spirit gathers with us. So His Spirit is here today in this place. Ephesus, where Timothy lived, was such a a godless place. The Ephesians lived within the earshot of the Temple of Artemis. The Temple of Artemis was also known as the Temple of Diana, the goddess Diana. Diana's temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was a magnificent facility. But it was an evil facility where there were temple prostitutes and just all kinds of awful things that were going on. So no matter what it looked like on the outside, there was a lot of death on the inside. So Paul wanted to remind the Ephesians that the church of Jesus Christ is the real temple. And that's why he talked about this here. Because they they couldn't miss seeing the temple of Artemis every single day. The living God does not live in temples made by human hands. He lives among his people, especially in corporate worship like today. So I'll put it this way. God is in the house. God is in the house. Which is why we begin a worship service like we do with an invocation. You ever thought about that, what, what an invocation actually means? We are invoking the presence of Almighty God in this place. We are inviting Almighty God to be with us and to come. To come by here. We are inviting the Holy Spirit of God to enter this house. To enter this house with power. I hope you sense as we gather together in the name of Jesus that God is here. According to the Word of God, the Spirit of God is here. So there should be order in God's house. The second lesson is the pillar of God's truth. The pillar of God's truth. 
So the church is not only a home for God and for God's people, Paul makes it clear it is a home for truth. Paul calls the church the pillar and foundation of the truth in verse 15. And speaking again of the temple of the goddess Diana, today you can go to the site of ancient Ephesus and you can see the spot where that temple once stood, proudly stood, and I'm told now the only thing that remains of that temple is a bog with an old stump of a pillar sticking out of the mud. Every one of these pillars of that temple were made of marble. Some of them were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. So the people who lived in Ephesus, they knew very well how beautiful a pillar could be. So they would have in their minds some idea of what Paul was saying when he described the church as the pillar of the truth. Did you know that Roman Catholic theologians typically use this verse to argue against the Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura? I've got that in your outline. Sola scriptura is a Latin phrase that means scripture alone. We're going to study this summer the five solas in summer Sunday school in June And one of the five solas is sola scriptura, which means our sole authority for how we conduct ourselves is what the scripture says. Yet, in the Roman Catholic theologian's mind, they say that the church is the foundation of the truth. See the difference? Which means they believe that along with the Bible, which Protestants hold to be the only standard for our faith and for our practice, Roman Catholics say we must obey church tradition along with the Bible. In other words, the truth rests upon the church and not the other way around. And that, my friends, is wrong. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 once again. We read the last verse. Let's read a couple of verses before that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul is writing to the Ephesians there, and he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of His household. There it is, that word again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief Cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So what are the five solas? Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. And we will study those this summer and I hope that you will plan to be with us. How can the church be the foundation of the truth If the truth is the foundation of the church. Notice the words that Paul uses in verse 15. The word foundation is actually the word buttress, which is hedrioma. A buttress is not a building's foundation, but actually part of its supporting structure. To be specific, a buttress helps to stabilize the walls and the pillars of a large building. And in the same way, the church of Jesus Christ helps to hold the truth together. The people of God are the people of the book. 
as Muslims like to call us, we're the people of the truth in that we support the truth of God in this world. So if our beliefs are based on anything that is not in the Bible, and that is really an important statement, then we are likely to be wrong. So I'll say that one again. If our beliefs are based on anything that is not in the Bible, then we've been deceived. There should be no room, no room in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for speculation. In other words, I kind of think it this way. What does Scripture actually say? We should base our understanding on the Scriptures, the truth of the Scriptures, not to speculation and the reaction of this world and what this world might think. Instead, we should plant firmly our stand on the teachings of Holy Scripture. The other word that Paul uses is the word pillar. And and what does a pillar do? Well, a pillar holds up the roof, in a sense. So to say the church is the pillar of the truth is to say that it lifts up the truth for all the world to see. And right now, in the church of the West, I would say the pillar that's holding up this gospel truth is holding up a truth that's very speculative. Over against what Roman Catholics say, that the church determines the truth, the Bible actually teaches that the church displays the truth, which has already been revealed in the living Word of God, even Jesus our Lord. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad as a pastor when the truth that we're holding up is not the authority of of Scripture, but what people might want to think the Scripture says. Again, we say it's open to interpretation and so forth. A lot of times it's not. A lot of times it's just very clear. People just don't like what they have to hear from God. So the first lesson is order in God's house. The second, the pillar of God's truth. And the third lesson is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. The pagans of this time period in which Paul lived, they had many mystery religions because their followers claimed that that no one could really know the truth until that person was led into the mystery to which they alone held the key. These religions were for a select few. However, what Paul wanted Timothy to know is that the mystery of godliness, which they declared, was very great and is one which is revealed to all who believe and place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, there is this mystery, but Paul let us in on the mystery a long time ago. What was that mystery? Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. Christ in you is the hope of the world. We are certainly not the hope of the world, but the church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. But only the church of Jesus Christ that stands on the word of God. And sadly today, there are many that don't. You know, the other day, and this is not in any way to pat myself on the back, but a lady came to me after, during the lunch and said, I really like to come to your church because you actually study and teach the Bible. And that broke my heart for her. So let's look at the six statements that follow what our text says. Many believe to be, because of its rhythmic nature, an ancient Christian hymn. So I I can't put it to music for you. But let's study those six statements briefly as we come to a close today. 
Six statements that are made about the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, he appeared in the flesh. He appeared in the flesh. This is what we remember when? Christmas. Christmas time. As the hymn writer said, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. So Jesus appeared in flesh, first of all. Secondly, he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now that's a confusing statement. Vindicated by the Spirit. How so? Well, there's three options. When Jesus was baptized, remember the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven said what? This is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. With Him I am well pleased. And then that's Matthew 3.17. And then another opportunity might be when Jesus rose from the dead, the Spirit actually was proving Him to be the Son of God. According to Romans 1 verse 4, also when he ascended into heaven, God sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of what? Of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, according to John 16, 7 and 8. So, he was vindicated by the Spirit for one of those three reasons, or all three of those reasons. Thirdly, he was seen by the angels. He was seen by angels. The angels witnessed Christ at his birth. In Luke 2, at his triumph over Satan's temptations. In Matthew 4, after his ascension into heaven. In Acts chapter 1. And as they welcomed him back into heaven. In Revelation 7 verse 12. So he was seen by the angels. Number 4, he was preached among the nations. He was preached among the nations. All peoples are invited to come and find their rest in Christ the Lord. And that includes you and me. We're all invited to come to Jesus. And to find our rest in him. Number five, he was believed on in the world. He was believed on in the world. You see, all kinds of people love Jesus because of the preaching of the cross, because of the preaching of the gospel. All kinds of people have come to embrace Jesus Christ as their only hope. It should be our desire to share this good news with all creation, to let people know, to let young people know that there's hope to be found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Number six, he was taken up in glory. He was taken up in glory. At the ascension, Jesus was taken up into glory. And at his return, he will come back in like manner. His church is to be waiting on him, eager for his return. Is that you? Are you eager for the return of Christ? Do you long for Jesus to return? Does the weight of what God has done for you in Christ press upon you? Constantly. What God has done for us in Christ ought to be foremost in our hearts and our minds as we live our lives throughout this this world that God has put us in. He's put us here to be a light for Christ. And so the truth that we've been talking about this morning of God's Word demands a response. And one of my commentators put a great summary on those six statements, and I want to close with that. Philip Graham Ryken writes this. He says, Since Jesus was manifested in the flesh, let us glorify Him with our bodies. Let us use our hands to help, our lips to bless, and our minds to serve. Since Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, let us pray that we ourselves will be vindicated on the day of judgment. Let us ask God to prove that we belong to Him by one day giving us glorious resurrection bodies. And since Jesus was seen by messengers, let us join the angels and the apostles in their worship around his throne. Since Jesus was and is proclaimed among the nations, let us testify to his grace, 
Declaring the gospel to everyone we love and sharing in the worldwide work of missions so that all peoples might praise him. And since Jesus was and is believed on in the world, let us believe on him with all of our hearts for salvation as well as for everything else we need. And since Jesus was taken up in glory, let us await his soon return with eager expectation, longing for the day when we will see the great mystery for ourselves. It brings us to our verse of the week, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So please take your bulletins beneath the outline if you already don't have them. And let's read this together out loud. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you've given to us to love us in spite of ourselves. We thank you for your great love for us, dear Father. And we thank you for the grace that will not only save us, but the grace that will enable us to keep the faith, to not give up the faith, but to keep our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus, that we might continue in the faith and not give up. By your grace, give us strength and perseverance that we might honor you in our lives, in our homes, where we work, where we live. Because wherever we go, Lord, we are the people of God, each of us. And as we walk, we walk not alone because you are with us, since your spirit lives inside of us. So as little temples, help us, Lord, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Lord, give us grace to stand on your truth and to know your word and to grow thereby. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.